You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Olympic Destroyer exploits eternal romance and morphs as it moves from machine to machine. The U.S. intelligence community tells Congress to expect a more assertive Iran, Russia, and North Korea in cyberspace. They also forecast more election influence operations. General Nakasone has been nominated to succeed Admiral Rogers at NSA and U.S. Cyber Command, and coin mining continues to make a nuisance of itself. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, February 14th, 2018. The Olympic destroyer malware that hit the Winter Games being held in South Korea appears to be a complex piece of work. It's a wiper, and it spreads via Eternal Romance, which is one of the alleged Equation Group exploits the Shadow Brokers leaked. More interestingly, it also contains a self-patching functionality that enables it to change its characteristics as it moves from machine to machine. Cisco's Talos Research Unit has been examining Olympic Destroyer, and they discern some similarities in its code to that used in NotPetya and Bad Rabbit. Speculation about attribution has turned largely toward Russia, but apart from circumstantial code similarities, such speculation remains based mostly on motive and opportunity. There are other hacks surrounding the Olympic Games, and Booz Allen's Cyber Foresight Research Unit this morning published a useful guide to the range of threats surrounding the games. They fall into familiar categories, nation-states interested in information operations and espionage, hacktivists pushing whatever agenda they feel can be usefully advanced, and common criminals looking to turn a dishonest buck by phishing and other scams. The U.S. intelligence community's annual threat assessment sees Iran, Russia, and North Korea as growing more assertive in cyberspace. They expect Russian influence operations, propaganda, and disinformation during this year's midterm elections. They say the goal is, as it was during the 2016 elections, to sow discord and mistrust. Spammers continue to up their game, taking advantage of botnets to send massive volumes of deceptive emails. They keep an eye on the calendar, too, and with the run-up to Valentine's Day, Researchers at IBM's X-Force Iris team have tracked a sizable uptick in targeted spam. John Kuhn is a senior threat researcher at IBM X-Force Iris. More specifically, it's around dating spam. You know, someone impersonating somebody else, saying that they they like their profile on uh, such and such, you know, social media. I think Badu and I think maybe Facebook was in there. And pretending that, you know, they're romantically like this person or they, they want to talk more to this person that's getting the spam. It's just a large, large uptick in that amount of spam centered around Valentine's Day where people might be a little more vulnerable to responding to those types of messages. So can you give us an idea of the scale of this? So what, what's the size of the campaign? 
So we witnessed over 230 million spam emails um, coming from 950,000 different IP addresses that are infected with the Necker's botnet. And the Necker's botnet, uh, what's behind that? This is uh, controlling uh, zombie bots? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a peer-to-peer botnet that is rather large. It's over 6 million infected nodes last count. So what's your recommendation for people to protect themselves against this? I mean, obviously there's education, but if I'm running an organization and, you know, Bob down in the mailroom has fallen on hard times in the romance department and thinks to himself, well, what could possibly go wrong? I might as well click on this and give it a shot. Uh, well, beyond education, how can I protect my organization? You know, utilizing spam filters, obviously, you know, we've been using spam filters since spam was created, but keeping those updated, keeping the definitions updated, keeping the intelligence inside of them updated, absolutely key. Um, the little more tricky part about this is most spam, as you know, they they use a lot of mixed English and they used a bit of, you know, misspelled words and those things are, are easily identifiable. This particular campaign it was very straightforward, plain English. So a lot of the spam filters might be tripped up. So so monitoring those spam filters, seeing what's coming through, seeing what's coming through in your own inbox. Again, educating your, your staff to report things as spam. You know, absolutely key. You know, education is is first and foremost, but there is technologies obviously that can help, you know, uh, thwart this stuff from even getting to the endpoint or, or the the victim in the first place. And in terms of an overall trend, or is this something that we're seeing more and more of, these sort of targeted spam campaigns based on uh, you know, events throughout the year, taxes, Valentine's Day, things like that? Yeah, because they're most effective around you know, seasonal things. You know, obviously, Valentine's Day, they're going to go with a romance thing. You know, maybe around Christmas, they go with, you know, sales or deals or, or something around, you know, the Christmas holiday. You know, it just it, it, it garners them more uh, return on, on their spam campaign that they're sending out. Um, I mean, the, the Necker's botnet historically used to send malware, right? It used to distribute malware, banking Trojans, ransomware, you know, remote access Trojans. Um, they're kind of dabbling in this spam game, you know, with the pump and dump stock schemes that they're they're using. I mean, the, the most important thing about this is this is a very, very large botnet, and you know, it's, it's important to track that and understand what their campaigns are to try to get ahead of them you know, as a security researcher or a security organization or just protecting your organization against, you know, things that are coming from it. They tend to do things in a large, high volume, so it's sort of easy to detect, but they don't care necessarily because they have such a high volume, they figure if they just send it out everywhere, they're going to get a bit of return and even a slight return on their investment, you know, is a win for them. Um, The other thing is, you know, they save a lot of money, right? They're not utilizing their own resources. They're not buying servers to send this out. They're compromising endpoints. They're utilizing, you know, stolen bandwidth, stolen, you know, processors, processor usage, you know, and, and I think that's that's very key when they start talking about just the sheer volume of the Necker's botnet and what they're capable of. That's John Kuhn from IBM's X-Force Iris research team. On Patch Tuesday, Microsoft fixed 50 bugs, 14 rated critical, affecting widely used products, including Outlook. Adobe patched 39 flaws in Acrobat and Reader. U.S. Army Lieutenant General Paul Nakasone, long the frontrunner, has been nominated to succeed Admiral Rogers as Director NSA and Commander U.S. Cyber Command. He'll be dual-hatted, at least initially, when he takes over this summer. A fourth star will come with the job. Cryptocurrency miners continue to trouble users of the Internet. 
Kaspersky Lab warns of a zero day in the Telegram messaging app that's been exploited by crooks to install miners on victim machines. The malware collects Zcash and Monera. Telegram has fixed the problem, which was specific to the Windows version of their app, so if you're a user, it's time to update your software. The malware, which Kaspersky researchers connect to Russian organized crime gangs, operates by concealing executable JavaScript using Unicode right-to-left override characters, RLO. Thus, the malicious file looks like an innocent PNG image. Criminal coin miners last week infested a lot of government sites, mostly in the United Kingdom, but also in Australia, the United States, and Canada. CoinHive is the typical payload crooks are installing in the targets. CoinHive, it seems, was developed by people who thought it would be innocent, fun, and, mark this, voluntary. Unfortunately, as CoinHive's creators have explained to Motherboard, their code got away from them and found its way into the hands of criminals. For some reason, they didn't think this would happen and regret it. Among the casualties of CoinHive abuse, TechCrunch complains, is SETI, the search for alien life that looks for anomalous and possibly intelligent artificial signals in the cosmos. SETI had done a lot of its work by using unused CPU resources in thousands of machines. Thus, unused resources are now increasingly in use by third parties busily mining cryptocurrency. Google is about to deploy an ad blocker to Chrome. Mountain View is expected to roll out the new feature tomorrow. Observers say it won't be an alternative to software like Adblock Plus or uBlock Origin. Instead, it represents Google's attempt to stop the more annoying sorts of ads from hitting your screen. That is, it's designed to block ads that don't conform to guidelines issued by the Coalition for Better Ads, essentially applying the patterns realized in the community-sourced Easy Rules. The sorts of ads expected to be filtered will include pop-ups, pre-stitial ads, autoplay ads with audio, and big sticky ads. There are some differences in the filtering depending on whether Chrome is running on a desktop or a mobile device, but the principles remain the same. To Google's credit, observers say the company is subjecting the contents of its own ad networks to the same filtering. So, if you make a living selling ads, we do, so we're not completely unsympathetic, although we don't use ad servers, at least not yet, what are you supposed to do? Graham Cluley reports that Salon Magazine now offers a choice. You can block ads, but only if you let them install a coin miner on your machine. We've taken a look at Salon, and, yep, it appears that's what they're up to. They even explain it in their FAQ to the question, What happens when I choose to suppress ads on Salon? Salon replies with a discourse on how the old mutually beneficial relationship, what Thorstein Veblen would have called the exploitation of man by man, in which you, the reader, get information and they, the publisher, get ad revenue, well, the times have changed. So if you want to read Salon, but don't want to see ads for, in our case, security software, then you'll have to let Salon install a crypto miner on your machine. Some people are complaining that the mining starts as soon as you click the Tell Me More button inviting you to install CoinHive. Well, at least they warn you that your computer's fan will turn on while Salon mines coin. Mining is disruptive, but not very lucrative. The recent coin hive infestations seem to have brought the crooks about $24. Maybe Salon should just consider a tip jar.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Dr. Yossi Oren. He's a senior lecturer at the Department of Software and Information Systems Engineering at Ben-Gurion University. He's also a member of BGU's Cybersecurity Research Center. Uh, Dr. Yossi, welcome back. Um, you know, we often talk about how important it is to use two-factor authentication, but that can be a challenge for people who may not have uh, well-developed motor skills or even poor vision. Uh, you all have been doing some research in this area. We've been doing this research together with the uh, research student uh, uh, Benjamin Verstendiker. The basic idea is that uh, we want to be able to use two-factor authentication. Many of us use it to log into our banks and so on. And basically how it works is you enter your username and your password to uh, a website, and then uh, the website sends you uh, a series of numbers, and it could be sent to you by text message, or um, if you're more security conscious, uh, you have this little dongle which is uh, like a key, a key ring holder, and these numbers appear on the screen, and then you go ahead and you copy these numbers from this little screen to your uh, phone, and then you can log in. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, with this, this is that many people are simply unable to use this. Mm -hmm. Because if we look at the sequence of operations you need to do, it's not very simple for many people. For example, uh, you have to have very good vision to be able to see these small numbers. Some of us have poor vision. Right. You also have to be able to memorize, it sounds for, to us very simple, to memorize a sequence of, let's say, six numbers and copy it. But for some people, this is a very difficult task. And there are people who don't have the, the ability to touch uh, a touch screen or manipulate a very uh, sensitive keyboard. 
Uh, so we were looking at a way to uh, make two-factor authentication more accessible to these people who will be able to use their computer with more uh, security and with more dignity, so they won't have to ask anybody to help them. Mm. So we took advantage of a very interesting phenomenon called um, piezo-gyro coupling, mm. which uh, it's, it's something which we initially thought of as a security problem. Uh, and it is when you place a very particular type of uh, speaker called the piezoelectric transducer next to your phone's gyroscope, which is one of the sensors on your phone, you can actually transmit data from this uh, transducer to the phone. Hmm. And uh, it's actually uh, very easy to read this from websites and from apps. You don't need any permissions. You don't need to do any modifications. And we actually built a device which uh, transmits these small sequences, let's say these six-digit sequences, from this little transducer to the phone. And then on the phone, you have a website or an application which reads it. And what this means uh, that for two-factor authentication, all you need to be able to do is to put your hands together. So we'll be holding your phone in one hand and our uh, device, which is about the size of a, of a coin, for example, when we finish shrinking it. And you just put them together, you touch them together for, for three or four seconds. And during this time period, this uh, transducer is going to uh, send this two-factor authentication sequence to the phone through the gyroscope. And we've tested this on various phones and on uh, various uh, web pages and applications. You get a pretty good data rate and error rate using this system. And what's nice about this uh, gyroscope system is that it already works on the hardware that you already have on your phones or on your tablets or on some of your laptops. I see. So you can start using it tomorrow. So the code that, that's being sent to you is being converted by the piezo speaker and then the phone is set up to receive that signal. To the person transmitting it, they're not doing anything different than they would normally. Yes. So instead of looking at this sequence of numbers with their eyes and memorizing it with their brain and typing them with their fingers, they're just going to put two hands together and the same sequence is going to be transmitted. We actually uh, implemented it using it's a standard, this uh, RFC, which is called this, the Internet Standards. There's a very standard way of generating these sequences, these two-factor authentication sequences. And we exactly use this exact same standard. The only difference is instead of transmitting it using uh, our eyes and memory and our fingers, we're transmitting it using this uh, gyroscope and uh, piezoelectric transducer. All right. That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> interesting research as always. Dr. Yossi Oren, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.